Welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. The song you just heard was a song called James K. Polk by the band They Might Be Giants, and it's helping us kick off an important three-part series as we explore the lives of Tennessee's three presidents, Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, and Andrew Johnson. It's interesting to note that none of those three men were actually born in Tennessee, but each spent the majority of their lives in the state and ascended to the White House while calling Tennessee home. Each of the three had an enormous impact upon Tennessee and United States history over a time frame that spans over 40 years, Jackson being elected in 1828 and Andrew Johnson ending his term in 1869. Of course, their contributions have been felt far beyond their presidential terms, and many of their policies are still relevant to this day. All of them have been in the news lately. It is also interesting to note that Murray County, Tennessee, was, in a way, a crossroads in their lives. Each of them spent time here, and the subject of today's program, James K. Polk, considered Murray County to be his home. I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, along with the longtime director of the President James K. Polk Home and Museum, John Holtzapple. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. John, tell us a little bit about the James K. Polk Home and Museum. How did it begin? Uh, the house uh, is the only surviving home of James K. Polk other than the White House, and that's really what, what put it on the map. As, as you certainly know, Tom, and, and you know, Barry, uh, James K. Polk retired and died in a big home in downtown Nashville that was supposed to be his museum. In fact, in his will, he stipulated that after he and his wife, Sarah, passed away, that Nashville home would go to the state of Tennessee as a museum and monument. And a complicated situation involving wills and family disputes. Uh, In 1901, that house was torn down. Uh, Even before that, the gravesite and the yard had been moved. And uh, some very distraught family members uh, who wanted James K. Polk's legacy to continue were looking for a new home for that. Uh, Polk wanted his museum to be in a house where he lived, and the house in Columbia was the only surviving one other than the White House. So it's been since 1929 that Columbia, Tennessee, has had a presidential museum. Right, which is pretty amazing. I think something that we often take for granted living here in Columbia, that this is a presidential town. And uh, I've had the privilege to work at the Polk Home for 21 years. Uh, I think one of the great strengths, I think there are several great strengths. One is the staff. Uh, You're going to get one of the best tours you're going to find anywhere in the country when you go through the Polk Home. The other is the collection. Uh, tell us a little bit about about the collection. Yes, absolutely. And and and, and Tom, uh, as a, your listeners may or may not know, was the curator of of the Polk Home for over twenty one years, responsible for for the collections. Uh, right now, his successor, uh, Candace Candido, doing a, a great job for us. But yes, it's things from throughout his lifetime, not just from his years in Columbia, but a lot of White House things, uh, things from the big home, that home in Nashville where he retired and died. So everything from documents to major pieces of furniture are in our collections here. It's a, some wonderful objects to see, some one-of-a-kind objects, things that you'll never see anywhere else in the world. So uh, it's, a, it's a great historic site. John, how long have you been there? Uh, over 35 years now. So, Which is yeah. amazing. In the museum field, just for those of you 
who are not uh, or have never worked in the museum field, one of the benefits of working in a museum is is going from museum to museum, maybe having uh, a career that spans three or four different historic sites. But, John, you've chosen to remain at Polk for a very long time. What's the thing that, that's kept you there all wow, this time? I, I'm learning things all the time. I mean, uh, I, I we're a small enough site that I'll, I'll still help with tours, even as an administrator. And uh, wow, almost every week I can get a question I've never heard any time before. After all of this time. After all this time. Let me ask you this. What about James K. Polk intrigues you? What what Can you think of one thing that really is kind of the hook for you when you think about James K. Polk? Uh, certainly the fact that he accomplished so much, uh, really shaped the country geographically, also sort of shaped the presidency and his the way he exercised his, his executive power. Uh, yet he is still in some ways seen as an, an obscure president. A, the average American might not know how, who James K. Polk is. So, so that contrast and sort of the, the pleasure of having visitors discover how much James K. Polk accomplished, I think, is something that's is wonderful about working at the Polk. People are almost always pleasantly are almost always pleasantly surprised when they come to the Polk because they don't know a lot about him going into it, and the number of accomplishments that he managed to get done in a single term of office. Everybody's always amazed. So it's a fun, absolutely a fun part of the job. That leads into to the next question that. Most historians consider him to be one of the most successful, perhaps the most successful one-term president in American history, yet he's one of the least known. Why is that? Uh, Certainly here in Tennessee, he's overshadowed by Andrew Jackson, who is the more colorful, or had the more colorful personality. I mean, Jackson, the war hero, the duelist, uh, uh, the man who sort of shapes the Democratic Party, uh, old Hickory compared to James K. Polk's young Hickory. So James K. Polk was sort of in Andrew Jackson's shadows during his lifetime, and I think still is. That that certainly uh, plays a, a big role. Also, uh, much of what Polk did was controversial. I mentioned all the land he added. Uh, he almost came to blows with Great Britain over the Oregon Territory. Uh, there was a controversial war against Mexico during his presidency with the annexation of the Southwest. And then after all that land was acquired, there was immediate question of whether you allow slavery in all this Western territory. So the controversy over what saw, many saw as an unnecessary war, and certainly the slavery controversy, uh, makes Polk's accomplishments or make Polk's accomplishments less celebrated. Right. Um, we're going to get into to all of those topics a little bit later in the interview. I mentioned in the opening that all three of Tennessee's presidents have been in the news lately. Uh, interesting. President Trump uh, has publicly likened himself or models himself or tries to model himself after the best known of the Tennessee presidents, Andrew Jackson. Some writers and historians have argued, however, that perhaps Trump is a, a little bit more like James K. Polk. In his book, The Year of Decision, 1846, the historian Bernard DeVoto described Polk as rigid, narrow, obstinate, far from first rate. More than that, the man himself was pompous, suspicious, secretive, had no humor, he could be vindictive, and he saw spooks and villains around him. So I I think those are similar descriptions uh, that have been used for our our current president. DeVoto continues, however, uh, and this is a quote, but if his mind was narrow, it was also powerful, and he had guts. His integrity was absolute, and he could not be scared, manipulated, or brought to heel. No one bluffed him. No one moved him with direct or oblique pressure. Furthermore, he knew how to get things done, which is the first necessity of government, and he knew what he wanted done, which is the second. 
Time will tell whether President Trump can live up to a comparison like the latter half of that description. Do you see any other similarities between Trump and Polk? Wow. Uh, I think I've been at the Polk home so long that I'm, I'm living in the 1840s and <laughs> do not give a, a good perspective of comparing, comparing uh, James K. Polk with present-day politicians. Right. Well, that, it's a sticky wicket, I think. That's, that's sometimes a difficult thing. I, I, I saw a couple things. One is maybe the work ethic. I think both of them are considered workaholics. Talk a little bit about Polk's work ethic. Wow, that's t- to an extreme. A workaholic is, is a good way of describing it. Uh, he had an unpromising youth. He was in, in bad health uh, for much of his earlier years, and for, really for his whole life. And uh, some historians have seen his hard work as a way of, of sort of compensating. I mean, Polk was friends and contemporaries with people like Andrew Jackson, uh, Davy Crockett or David Crockett, Sam Houston, and Polk doesn't fit that that rugged frontier image. He was a man who got a lot accomplished uh, first as a student by studying hard, as a lawyer by constantly outworking his opponents, and as a politician by saying so focused on his his work. Maybe one more comparison as I was thinking about this, um, clashes with the cabinet. Now, James K. Polk didn't lose cabinet members, I think, out of all of his cabinet. One one left, uh, but the rest remained. But in his diary, you find that he wasn't afraid to go against their counsel and make his own decision. Oh, very much that's that's true. Polk himself used the phrase, I will myself be president. And uh, that was even in regard to Andrew Jackson. We mentioned how much he, he sort of looked up to Jackson. Uh, shortly before Polk's presidency, uh, while he was still here in Columbia, he was trying to decide or select his cabinet. And he actually paid a visit to the Hermitage to ask Jackson's advice on whom he should select for the cabinet. And he didn't follow the, the advice. But he still made that courtesy call. But right there from the very beginning, he was even going to, to defy Andrew Jackson's suggestions. I think the comparisons, we, we can end with the comparisons with our, our current president there, other than saying he, he, here's sort of opposite ends of the spectrum where Trump comes from a great deal of wealth. Polk didn't. Where where did James K. Polk find his beginnings? Uh, here in Murray County, and I know you always want to make that hook or connection between Murray County history and national history, and really, uh, when James Polk came here, this was the West. This was the frontier. So he was born in? In North Carolina, near Charlotte. Okay. Uh, his father, Samuel, was a land surveyor who always wanted to stay near the edge of the frontier and then also was paid partly in land. So if Samuel eventually made the decision to move his family to where his work and his land were. And James K. Polk was 10 going on 11 when the family crossed the mountains and settled here in Middle Tennessee. And it really was the, the first year here, at least, was really barely subsistence living. Uh, so James K. Polk did have that that frontier experience, and that would really shape his life and certainly shape his political philosophy. So his father, Samuel, was a land surveyor, a land speculator. What about his mother? Uh, the mother, Jane, was uh, a dutiful wife and mother who had 10 children, uh, who'd outlived seven of the 10 children. So a very strong woman in her own right, a strong, resolute woman. And a Presbyterian? Uh, definitely a, a strict Presbyterian. Her maiden name was Knox, Knox. as in uh, John Knox, the Scottish Presbyterian reformer.
and James she's K. the Pope, descendant of John Knox's brother, in fact. Right. So uh, James K. Pope was the oldest in the a family. Oldest of, and has Knox as a middle name. Yeah. Like, that's what that K stands for. And so he has nine siblings. He's the oldest of ten in this frontier family. He's about 10 or 11 years old when he comes from North Carolina to Tennessee. Uh, and they settle in Murray County, in the north end of town. Uh, and so... What is it like for him? Do we do we have any sense of what what his youth was like growing up on the western frontier? Uh, there's very little specific documentation on it, but a a noted uh, historian Charles Sellers in his biography of James K. Polk sort of speculates on what a life on the frontier would have been like and and Sellers is one who does pick up on the theme that that Polk wasn't in good health compared with with many of the others. So right from the beginning uh, might have seen himself as inferior almost. Uh, didn't have really any formal education until about 17 years old. Uh, in fact, shortly before that, as a teenager, right before his 17th birthday, he needed surgery for stones in his urinary bladder. And it's sort of a, a, a gruesome story to be hearing early in the morning, so I won't go into too many details, but he had to travel over 230 miles by horseback to, to Danville, Kentucky, near Lexington, just to get to Dr. Ephraim McDowell, the nearest surgeon who could perform the operation. Polk had the operation while awake. Uh, it was successful, but really took a toll on him physically. Uh, there looked like no way he could follow in his father's path of being a land surveyor, which is really rigorous. I mean, constant horseback riding and hiking off the beaten trail. And uh, Polk himself uh, needed to, to, to just focus on his studies to, to succeed in life. So uh, at 17 years old, he has this surgery. He recovers. He's more robust after that? Somewhat, somewhat, <laughs> but still uh, not, not what you'd consider really the healthy frontier youth even then. So he goes to his education with a yes, vengeance. Uh, br- yes, and briefly attended uh, sort of the, the forerunner of what's now Zion, Christian Academy outside of Columbia, uh, then all short time at Bradley Academy in Murfreesboro, but had less than three full years of formal education before he applied for University of North Carolina and did so well on his entrance exam, he was admitted to college as a sophomore and then graduated in three years with top honors. Which is pretty incredible to think about. So he grows up on the frontier, doesn't really have any formal education, really because he can't, until he's 17 years old, and then within a few years graduates from the University of North Carolina, which is one of the finest men's schools in the South mm-hmm. in the 19th century, uh, right at the at the top of his class. Uh, and that's, I think, where we first see that work ethic coming coming into play. Um, if I remember from my reading, his roommate in college talked about his work ethic and how he would stay up all night studying a subject until he knew everything about it uh, um, and then uh, succeeded in that way. And that roommate was no slouch. His name was William Mosley, and he was the first governor of Florida. Right. Yeah, Florida became a state the day before Polk was inaugurated. So interesting little trivia there. One day, one of the roommates becomes the governor of a brand new state. The next day, the other roommate becomes president of the United States. Incredible. Well, we're going to take our first break. Um, We'll be back in in a few minutes uh, to talk more about James K. Polk. We'll be right back right after these messages. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. 
Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, this is Rick Tillis with Tillis Jewelry in Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. What are you looking for in a jeweler? Knowledgeable staff? Experienced goldsmiths? Or true custom designers? Experienced working with clients creating that perfect gift for a special loved one? Well, you have found them. Tillis Jewelry. We're this and so much more. Check us out at TillisJewelry.com or on Facebook and Instagram to see our latest creations. Tillis Jewelry, Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about James K. Polk. We have in the studio with us John Holtzapple, the director of the James K. Polk Museum uh, here in Columbia, Tennessee. John, we were just talking about uh, James K. Polk's education Uh, that he, at the age of 17, really begins his education. Within three years, he's admitted to the University of North Carolina, graduates in three years rather than four uh, at the top of his class. Uh, He then comes back to Tennessee. And what's next for him? What's his his chosen career path? Okay, while he was in college, he participated in a debating society called the Dialectic Society. And historians think that that's where he developed his interest in law and politics. And Coming back to Columbia, he was determined to become a lawyer. Uh, nothing like law school here in the frontier, though. So he became an apprentice to a, a well-known Nashville lawyer and politician, Felix Grundy. And we've talked about Andrew Jackson being a mentor to James Polk, but certainly Felix Grundy was too. Uh, 
Polk uh, would serve in Grundy's office and probably do things like copy documents and maybe even light the fire on cold winter days. In exchange for that, he was trained in the law. He got to read the law is the term that they often used, which is quite literally reading every law book that they could get Mm -hmm. their hands on. They still had to pass the bar exam, however. Yes, which which Polk did and already had a law practice in Columbia by age 25. So his mentors were really political giants in the time period, and and we'll talk about this when we get to the Jackson show a little bit more, but there's a real shift in political thought that happens around the era of Jackson, where prior to Andrew Jackson, all of the previous presidents were either the New England elite or they were from Virginia. So when Jackson gets elected, uh, politics sort of moves westward, this idea of common man, and you have people like Andrew Jackson and Sam Houston and Felix Grundy, who at the height of his career would be Attorney General and President Van Buren's cabinet. So he's really learning not just the law and, and politics, he's learning from from the political minds of the mid-19th century. Absolutely. Uh, Grundy was actually U.S. Attorney General during Martin Van Buren's presidency, so Polk is learning from major national figures. What kind of a lawyer was he? Do we have any sense? What kind of cases did he... Was he a defense attorney or a prosecuting attorney? A little bit of everything. We know he was a defense attorney, uh, handled or, or defended accused horse thieves, counterfeiters, an accused stalker. Uh, but also did a lot of land cases. And in the frontier, there are so many land disputes, people fighting over, over borders. And, and this son of a land surveyor, James K. Polk, handled cases for his father on occasion and also handled a lot of other law ca- uh, land cases too. He had plenty, plenty of business uh, on, on the frontier. He didn't remain in his law practice very long before he jumped into a political career. How did, how did that begin? Oh. As a lawyer, he was a, a circuit law, lawyer. He was based here in Columbia, but he traveled from one county seat to the next throughout the frontier. And as a result, he became well-known over a wide area. And we think that sort of fueled his, his political interests. But the fact he didn't look up to people like uh, Felix Grundy and Andrew Jackson, who made the transition from law to politics, might have inspired James Polk anyway. But yes, uh, he was just in his 20s when he challenged an incumbent for a seat in the state legislature and won. So how many terms in the state legislature? Okay, he actually, he was just a one term as a legislator, uh, but was already looking ahead to national politics. Uh, in fact, uh, he in, in between his state uh, election and, uh, well, he got married, I should say, after that. He married Sarah Childress of Murfreesboro, uh, whom he courted while he was in Murfreesboro as a state legislator. Murfreesboro was Tennessee's temporary capital at that time. Uh, and uh, with Sarah's input, too, uh, we get the impression he started looking for higher office. And uh, after only one term in, in Tennessee politics, so to speak, in the Tennessee legislature, he ran for Congress and U.S. Congress and won and served seven terms as U.S. congressman, including two terms as Speaker of the House. I'm glad you brought up Sarah. She She's a, a big piece of this puzzle, I think. Now, the Pokes had no children. Maybe a side effect of that crude surgery Polk had as a teenager. So tell us a little bit about Sarah and her role as the wife of a congressman and later president of the United States. What do we know about Sarah? Uh, From the very beginning, she had uh, political interests. So for someone so focused on his career as James K. Polk, it was an ideal match. Uh, She shared his general political philosophy, the sort of populist democratic philosophy – 
Uh, she was an educated woman and not afraid to, to speak her mind. Uh, so she, throughout his life, served as sort of a behind-the-scenes advisor. Uh, she was a sounding board for his idea, for his ideas. Uh, when he went off campaigning somewhere, like as a, a congressman, uh, was he, when he was campaigning, she served as his political eyes and ears at home, uh, constantly corresponding with him about politics. And I know you will remember uh, all your research and going through James K. Polk's published correspondence. Uh, the letters from Sarah to James will have a, a little bit about uh, take care of yourself. I hope you stay healthy. But much of it is just political matters. Right. It's kind of all business all the mm-hmm. time. From a political perspective, they're kind of a power team. Uh, we don't get any real sense of that personal connection between the two of them. But she she's very much a political helpmate uh, to, to James. Yes. And when he was running for governor, she managed this schedule and this really difficult schedule crisscrossing the state and from her base here in Tennessee. Uh, she managed the campaign. Which is pretty incredible for a, a woman in the 19th century who didn't have the right to vote, didn't have the right to run for office. She, she's, uh, we get a sense that she loves every bit of this. She, she's making a difference politically, um, uh, even on a national scale, before she's even first lady. Um, I, I think it's a, a fascinating match. Yeah, she does two things. She manages the campaign and worries incessantly about her husband's health. Right. That's that work ethic again. When you read the correspondence, when Polk was running for Congress, uh, and even more so, and we'll get to this in a second, as he ran for governor, he wrote on horseback to every county in the state. And people were writing about it in the newspapers, what what this guy, the, this Herculean effort he would put into politics. And Sarah was sort of coordinating that, telling him where his opponent was speaking. And James K. Polk would at the last second ride up and and enter a debate with his with his opponent. So... Um, I, th- I think she had a lot to do with his success in, in these state in these state elections. Um, so Polk is elected to Congress. He is one of President Andrew Jackson's chief lieutenants in the House of Representatives. What do we know about the relationship between Polk and Jackson from not just a political but a personal standpoint? Do we have any sense of that? Uh, both personally and politically, James K. Polk was very loyal. And Andrew Jackson certainly appreciated that. So jumping ahead in time, uh, during James K. Polk's presidency, Andrew Johnson was a U.S. congressman and wasn't as loyal to Polk, didn't always agree with Polk's legislation the way Polk had with Jackson. And Polk actually made note of that, that uh, that Johnson wasn't as loyal to him as he had been to to Andrew Jackson. But in in truth, though, uh, the loyalty wasn't hard because they were almost of one mind, that James K. Polk very much shared Jackson's populist uh, belief in the the common man and the the looking after the interests of farmers and frontiersmen and, and factory workers. So seven terms in the House of Representatives, 14 years. Polk rose to the position of Speaker of the House. To this day, he is the only Speaker of the House to go on to become President of the United States. What kind of Speaker was he? He was a, in some ways, a a beleaguered Speaker uh, in that he, as very Speakers of the House often are, they certainly take flack from the opposing party. Uh, and even within their own party, they're not always the, the most popular person because they have to do the necessary arm twisting to, to keep people in line. 
Uh, one of the issues that, that Polk as speaker defended was certainly controversial then and controversial in the history books was the so-called gag rule of not allowing any discussion about slavery on the, the floor of, of Congress. That was such a divisive issue that we can't even talk about it. And Polk did his best to, to try to enforce that. Polk was a very partisan politician. So like like you're saying, I think every speaker is beleaguered in some m- manner because of that. But he was he was I probably less willing to cross, geez, a modern euphemism, cross the aisle uh, in his time. Uh, so so he I think he was challenged to a duel uh, on uh, at least one occasion. I think uh, Mr. And, Wise of Virginia called him out and turned away from him. Sort of interesting. At, at that time, it, it raised some eyebrows here that he he turned away from a, a duel over what he thought was a trivial matter. But in the long run, it was actually to his benefit that during the 1844 uh, Democratic campaign or excuse me, the presidential campaign. Uh, the Whig candidate, Henry Clay, had been involved in some some duels, and it actually became a, an issue that James K. Polk was this level-headed man who turned away from a, a frivolous duel, and Henry Clay was uh, a, described as a bloodthirsty man uh, uh, attempting the lives or challenging the lives of his fellow man. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is that Henry Wise really wanted this duel. And I think Henry Wise thought he was going to kill James K. Polk. And Polk was very wise to uh, to not play into this. And it's it's interesting that Andrew Jackson, the duelist himself, Andrew Jackson heartily approved of the way Polk handled the situation. Right. Yeah. Wise was known to be a crack shot. This, this was absolutely an attempt at getting rid of the Speaker of the House. And uh, Polk managed to managed to get out of that. Um James K. Polk gives up his seat in the House of Representatives to run for governor of Tennessee. He's successful in his first try at it. What kind of a governor was he? I'm actually going to hand that question over to Dr. Gitcom, who recently gave a program in our Polk's America series, a, a series that you started, Tom, way back, I think, in 1998, <laughs> of a monthly lecture series on American society and culture during Polk's presidency. And Barry did a, a really good program on James K. Polk as governor. So, Well, at, at the time that Polk was governor, the, the governor of Tennessee didn't really have a lot of authority he it was it was more of a ceremonial figurehead type position but polk himself had a lot more influence as governor simply because he had come back from washington and rescued his party from the whigs in 1839 nevertheless it was very hard to accomplish anything in his two years as governor partly because of the panic of 1837 and the financial uh, situation and and also the fact that Spoke, Polk spent much of his time running for governor, or much of his time as governor, trying to get on the ticket as Van Buren's running mate. Right, which the state of Tennessee, a lot of the citizens of the state of Tennessee didn't appreciate. Right. <laughs> if I remember from newspaper articles, uh, that he should be in Nashville doing his job rather than running around the state camp- campaigning for uh, Martin Van Buren. Uh, one term as governor, and then the bottom falls out. His career appears to be over. He loses two successive bids for re-election to governor of Tennessee. How did he react to the loss, and what did he do in the interim? He worked. 
uh, and worked and worked and worked uh, to try to revive his his political career. Uh, you're absolutely right. He'd been a, a rising star up until this time. Uh, he had left the speakership really at the height of his power, almost as a favor for the Democratic Party in Tennessee. They were worried that the Whigs were gaining ascendancy in the state, so they needed a big-name candidate to run for governor. Uh, As Barry mentioned, uh, just the one-term governorship where he didn't do much. uh, As governor itself, the position didn't uh, allow him to do much. And he just was sort of there as the Whigs grew more and more powerful in Tennessee. Uh, But he did all he could in local or state Democratic politics and in national Democratic politics, too, uh, to to revive his career, Uh, constantly looking for opportunities. Polk was a hard worker, but he was also one who would seize on every opportunity. And when an opportunity came up, uh, he was ready. And that's what happened in 1844. Well, this is a good stopping point. Uh, We'll uh, continue the story in three minutes and 30 seconds. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. A while back, I told you a story about Packer, our mascot, that Don found in the garbage truck after someone had thrown her out. Well, since then, I've been asked several times about Packer. Is she a dog or is she a cat? I guess I never thought to say, but she's a pit bull mix. And you can see a picture of her sitting in the driver's seat of Don's service truck on our website, garbagemaninc.com. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown columbia securities and investment advisory services offered through nbc securities incorporated member finra and sipc hello my name is connor mims my wife bradley and i live in columbia tennessee in riverside 
I am a deck and porch builder, and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com, and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. If you're just joining us, we're talking about James K. Polk today. We have in the studio Mr. John Holtzapple, the director of the James K. Polk Home and Museum, located here in Columbia, Tennessee. So just to recap, James K. Polk, a product of the Western frontier, goes to the University of North Carolina, becomes a lawyer, jumps immediately into politics uh, on the state level, and then 14-year member of the United States House of Representatives, Speaker of the House, Governor of Tennessee, loses his bid, the next two bids for re-election, the bottom falls out. And you mentioned he, he goes back to what he knows, which is hard work. He's working in the interim. Did he have other sources of income, John, besides politics and the law? Uh, yes. And uh, Polk, we talk about Polk and expansionist land is always a key to, to James K. Polk. Uh, his father as a surveyor was paid partly in land. James K. Polk would inherit land from his his father and would invest in land. And uh, here in the South, a land, especially if you're farming land, often meant slavery, enslaved workers, and that was also part of James K. Polk's income. And I know uh, about eight years ago, you, Tom, were, as a curator, were working on an exhibit right this time of year. I remember the end of the year, during holiday time, you were working on an exhibit called A Matter of Utmost Caution, James K. Polk and Slavery. So uh, I'm interested in, in your input on that. Well, th- thanks uh, for for mentioning that. That, that was a, a big exhibit for us. Um, so right, so James K. Polk uh, did engage in the institution of slavery. I, I thought he was a fascinating character from which to look at the institution of slavery because he dealt with it from really two different perspectives. One, as a slaveholder himself, he inherited slaves from his father uh, at the time of his marriage, at the time of his father's death. Uh, and continued to increase his slave holdings over time. Most of the enslaved people in uh, of James K. Polk were sent to work on a plantation he owned in first in West Tennessee. I think he had two there, one in Fayette County, one in Hardeman County, I think. And then he sold that plantation, and, and the uh, enslaved people there were moved into Mississippi, north-central Mississippi, Alabusha County, where he had 960 acres of land upon which uh, the slaves worked and toiled. Um, the other perspective from which James K. Polk was, was engaged in the idea of slavery is from a theoretical standpoint. As a politician in a time when slavery is really becoming a political issue, he's having to legislate on it. And you, you've already mentioned one of the ways that he dealt with slavery, certainly as Speaker of the House, was by not dealing with slavery. He invoked the <laughs> gag rule uh, and, and disallowed any discussion related to slavery uh, over time. But uh, one of the great fortunes, and I often talk on the show about uh, primary documents, going back to the documentation and how the Murray County Archives has all of, all of the records. But Polk was an avid letter writer. He kept a dog. And those letters tell us a great deal about the slaves of James K. Polk. Because he was an absentee owner of this plantation in Mississippi, he had a series of overseers who ran 
the plantation and they wrote to James K. Polk every month about what was happening on that plantation. So we have a very clear understanding of how the plantation was run. It gives us a very interesting view into uh, plantation life and slave life in in the mid-19th century. But Polk was making money uh, on the plantation. I think he was at least publicly or in his letters trying to separate his plantation income from his political income. He was very aware, despite the fact that he invokes the gag rule, he's very aware of what slavery is is starting to mean on a national scale and what that could mean to a politician as well. Um, He continued to buy slaves even during his presidency, I think, but he did it through a third party. So again, publicly, people wouldn't know that the president was engaging in, in, in buying in buying slaves. Uh, and he's he's there are abolitionist groups that are sort of gaining ground prior to Polk. I think they were kind of considered a fringe group. But by the time Polk is the president of the United States, it's becoming much more mainstream. And he's getting some angry letters, if I remember correctly, from some abolitionist groups in New England who are concerned about a slaveholding president in the White House. Um, so so he's keenly aware of what that means. Um throughout his life. But uh, we're fortunate. Uh, and at the Polk home, uh, uh, at least did, did our best and, and tried very much to sort of do that research and understand the, the lives of, of the enslaved people uh, that belong to James K. Polk. So let's get back to the politics politics uh, a second because this is where the story gets really interesting. He loses two bids for reelection for governor. He's at the lowest point in his career. Everybody thinks he's washed up. Mm-hmm except for James K. Polk. So what, what's his next move? I, I said he was always one to seize opportunities. In, in 1844, uh, heading into the, the Democratic Convention, it looked like the former president, uh, Martin Van Buren, who had served one term and lost running for re-election, uh, looked like Van Buren would be the Democrats' nominee that year, too. But not too long before the convention, he, he blundered in uh, – publicly uh, revealing his concern about annexing Texas. And Texas had a long time been a Mexican province, which had broken away from Mexico in the 1830s. That was the rebellion with the Alamo and San Jacinto and, and all that. Uh, now a lot of folks in the United States wanted Texas to join the country. But Texas was a big chunk of slave territory. Uh, Mexico had never acknowledged Texas independence. And Van Buren, worried about stirring up the slavery issue and not wanting a war with Mexico, uh, came out in opposition to annexing Texas. And that was a a very unpopular position in the South and the West. And Tennessee qualifies as both the South and the West. Uh, So right away, James K. Polk, who had been a Van Buren loyalist, saw his candidate sort of going off in a a dangerous direction as far as getting the nomination. Another prominent Democrat who had been on Jackson's cabinet, Lewis Cass uh, from Michigan, uh, was uh, supporting Texas annexation. So the Democrats heading into their convention had Van Buren as their supposed but very weak frontrunner, Cass right on his heels, and a number of other candidates being mentioned. Uh, Polk seeing a divided party, saw maybe an opportunity. And for a long time, historians would say that he saw just an opportunity of being vice president, that as a unifying figure, he he agreed with, uh, he was a good supporter and friend of Martin Van Buren, but he agreed with Cass on the Texas issue. So he could help sort of bridge the gap. Whoever got the nomination, Van Buren or Cass, would be looking for an olive branch for the other side, and Polk could fill that function. For a long time, that was the belief. 
but Polk's published correspondence is revealing that though Polk himself maybe still was thinking of the vice presidency, there he saw a path to something higher. They saw he and his supporters saw the that the division within the Democratic Party left an opening for him to revive his career. And though he lost here in Tennessee, he was still viewed favorably by the National Democratic Party. He had served as Speaker of the House. Again, he had stepped aside from his speakership out of loyalty to the Democratic Party. So in a sense, the party owed him one. Uh, I was going to say that that Andrew Jackson was absolutely crushed at Van Buren's position on Texas and wrote him a letter. And he said, you know, I have shed tears of regret. I can no longer support you for president. And with all with all the Southern delegates that look to Andrew Jackson, uh, that really opens the door for James K. Polk. So he seizes the opportunity. And so he's considered our first dark horse candidate because he wasn't officially considered a candidate leading into the Democratic National Convention in Baltimore in 1844. His name comes up on the ballot at what point? Well, they actually went through seven ballots of Van Buren and Cass, and they've gotten more and more divided. Neither candidate was seizing the lead. Uh, Van Buren was actually gradually losing some support. Uh, The party was worried. Party leaders were worried about party just splitting in half, and they needed a compromise candidate. Because they Uh, are going to be running their candidate against who? Henry Clay. Who is one of the greatest names, a household name in uh, in America in the time period, a giant in American politics. Absolutely. And the Democrats were still hurting from losing the previous election with Martin Van Buren. So they needed a a candidate to unite the, the party. It was on the eighth ballot that Polk's name first came up, and apparently it caused such a commotion and excitement and it led to a lot of behind-the-scenes arm-twisting that he was nominated on the ninth ballot. Unanimously. Okay, yes. Unanimously nominated on the ninth ballot. So at the lowest point in his political career, one of the greatest political turnarounds in American history, he winds up with a nomination for the presidency in 1844, running against Henry Clay, the great political giant of of American politics, how does the election come out? Uh, Polk was wise enough and uh, aware enough of the slavery issue that he not only ran on Texas, but ran on the Oregon Territory also, the theme, an expansionist platform, Texas and Oregon Territory. And that refers to not just what's now the state of Oregon, but Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, Western Montana, Canadian province of British Columbia, Western Alberta, all of that was considered the Oregon country, but it was a dispute over what was Great Britain's and what belonged to the United States. So Polk ran on seizing the Oregon territory and also getting Texas. And the expansion issue that would lead to a lot of trouble and lead to war as far as Texas went and Mexico, uh, it was a very popular issue. Polk was riding the crest of a, of a wave. And he wins the election by about how many votes? I don't remember that total. It was, it was very close. It was New York was the decisive state. Had New York gone for Clay, uh, 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 Clay would have won the election. But I, I don't remember the one popular of the closest yes. in the nineteenth century. Yeah. One of the closest in American history. Do you remember Barry? Or? Yes, it, it popular vote. Polk got fifty percent of the popular vote. Clay got a little over forty eight percent. The the wild card was the Liberty Party that picked up almost 2% of the popular vote, and the Liberty Party may well have cost Henry Clay 
the state of New York in the election, even though Polk had 170 electoral votes to Clay's 105, New York had 36 electoral votes. And the election really came down to who took New York. And uh, Polk took New York by 5,000 votes over Clay. The anti-slavery, anti-Texas Liberty Party in New York picked up almost 16,000 votes. Wow. Incredible, incredible turnaround. So Polk is elected president of the United States. He's the youngest up to the time, just 49 years old, I think, when he becomes president. Pretty quickly says he's going to run for a single term only uh, and then step aside. Uh, We're going to have to stop right here and take our final break, and then we're going to speed through his presidency when we come back. So we'll be right back right after these messages. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. The crimson and white jerseys. Front court to the rack and the play. The sound of a buzzer beater. Got it to go as the buzzer sounds. The roll tide chant from the crowd. Three. Got it. And he's fouled. It can only be Alabama basketball. Join the Alabama Crimson Tide right here. On your home for Alabama basketball. The Crimson Tide Sports Network from Learfield. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about James K. Polk. Uh, So he is the youngest president elected up until the time, 49 years old. He had some pretty specific goals that he wanted to accomplish. What were they, John? Entered the White House with four main goals, uh, American expansion in the Southwest. And though he didn't specifically mention California, he had his eyes on all of that. Also, American expansion in the Northwest, the Oregon Territory, lowering tariffs and establishing what they called an independent U.S. Treasury, independent of the banking system. Managed to accomplish them all in his single term of office. In a office. single term. In fact, by, by three years into his term, he pretty much accomplished everything he set out to do, including stretching the country the whole way, the Pacific Ocean, uh, settled the border of the Oregon Territory uh, as the 49th parallel so that we got Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Just through negotiations. Just through negotiations. Uh, sure enough, the Texas issue did lead to a very controversial war against The against most Mexico. controversial aspect of Polk's presidency is the U.S.-Mexican War, which had, uh, the at its very base, the, the settlement of the border between Texas and Mexico, being whether it was going to be the Nueces River or the Rio Grande. Polk sent a military detachment out to defend what he believed to be the southern border at the Rio Grande. Mexico sends a military uh, unit up to defend the Nueces, and it's just a matter of time before there's a clash of arms. Absolutely. War was inevitable. It was a a two-year war, uh, a very high casualty rate, mainly because of of disease. That's a controversial war, in some ways a tragic war. 
But as far as Pocan getting his goals, a very successful war. United States got Texas to the Rio Grande, which not only was farther south than the Nueces, but went a lot farther west. I mean, stretched to present-day New Mexico and and Colorado, too. It's fascinating to me. It's one of those times in American history where a a lot of people were against the war. That was the controversial side of it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, who is a one-term congressman, came out against the war, lost his seat in Illinois as a result. Ulysses Grant was a young lieutenant in the war and fought there and later in his life called it uh, uh, one of the most wicked chapters in American history. But what I find interesting about that is the circumstances of the war controversial. Some call it negative. Uh, but the outcome, nobody is really complaining about. It's one of those odd times in American history where maybe bad deeds lead to a greater good, uh, perhaps. That's continued to be debated even today. Uh, not only then did we get the land all the way to Rio Grande, but as part of the settlement, we were able to buy at a bargain rate, at a victor's rate, uh, the southwest, really the whole way to California. And then the same year the treaty was signed, 1848, gold was discovered in California. So, I mean, really salt in Mexico's wounds, but a huge advantage to the United States. It's an amazing chapter in, in our country's uh, history. And again, still still debated out today of the rightness of, of that war. Uh one of the key players, of course, in the U.S.-Mexican War is Zachary Taylor. James K. Polk, promised one-term president, did not seek re-election, as promised. And what happens in the next election? Uh, the Whigs, who had been so critical of the Mexican War, ran a Mexican War hero as their candidate, Zachary Taylor, who'd been fairly non-political up until that time. And Polk, really, throughout his presidency as a partisan Democrat, was kind of kicking himself that he was making heroes out of two Whigs, Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. He was worried they'd run for president. Both of them did, and and Zachary Taylor won. Wins the presidency. So James K. Polk retires from the presidency after his promised single term, 53 years old. What is his retirement like? Instead of returning to Columbia, he decided to move to the big city in the area, Tennessee's capital city then of Nashville, but bad timing. Uh, There was shortly after he got back, there was a a cholera outbreak in Nashville, and Polk died of cholera only three months after he left the White House, just 53 years old. So he's the president to have the shortest retirement of all. Absolutely. I think the youngest president to die outside of those who have been assassinated. Assassinated, Yes. Uh, So lots of of interesting statistics uh, and factoids around around James K. Polk. Various rankings of the president uh, consider him one of the most successful in American history. Usually he ranks sort of in that uh, second tier of of, uh, successful presidents in American history. A lot to learn about James K. Polk. There are plenty of biographies out there about him. I would encourage our listeners to go to the Polk home. Go and and visit the place where he lived. You're going to see an incredible collection. Uh, They have an amazing staff there that's going to tell you uh, about the history and legacy of the 11th president of the United States. So so go to the Polk home uh, as soon as you get a chance. I want to close the show with a uh, a James K. Polk uh, quote. Uh, And this is James K. Polk to a T. He said, no president who performs his duties faithfully and conscientiously can have any leisure. And that's that's James K. Polk in a nutshell. He worked himself uh, right to an early grave. On behalf of Dr. Barry Gidcombe, uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time.